All right, friends. So thus far on this season, we have covered a lot of ground in this topic of food preservation. And one topic you've heard us talk about just briefly touched on with various guests would be the topic of dehydration. Um, I think we referenced it briefly in the meat episode and the egg episode. You know, honestly, though, this is not a topic I am super personally familiar with. I mean, I've had a dehydrator for many years, and I dehydrate little bits of food here and there each year. But I really don't think I'm using dehydration, or my dehydrator for that matter, to the best of its ability. I feel like I could be doing a lot more to maximize um, the efficiency of a dehydrator and what it could bring to my homestead. So today, I am very excited to welcome Jessica Spears back to the podcast. You may remember her from a previous season when she came on to talk about bulk food storage. And well, dehydration is another skill in Jessica's wheelhouse. So we are going to talk all things dehydrator today. Jessica is a homesteading and homeschooling mother of seven living in Northwestern Ohio, where she gardens, keeps bees, and raises poultry and beef to feed her large family. Raising and preserving homegrown food and cooking from scratch are very important to her as her family navigates many challenges, including anaphylactic food allergies and autoimmune issues. She documents her journey on Instagram and YouTube over at 3 Rivers Homestead. And I just love Jessica's approach to cooking and homesteading. She's practical and down to earth in real life, and you are going to love this interview. You're listening to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast, where ambitious people master the art of returning to their roots. Have you found yourself disenchanted with society or wishing you could opt out of the rat race? Perhaps you're craving a life that's meaningful and tangible, a life where you can create and produce instead of merely consume. I'm Jill Winger, best-selling author and longtime homesteader. Over the last 10 years, I've helped thousands of families create more connection, grow amazing organic food, and find the ultimate fulfillment through an old-fashioned lifestyle. And I can do the same for you. Now, on to our episode. Hey, Jessica, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. Um, you know, when we were initially having you on the first time you came on, you know, Michelle, who is my assistant, you've been talking to Michelle, but for those listening, um, Michelle helps me book podcast guests and her and I brainstorm, who can we have on, you know, your, your name came up a lot for the, um, bulk food preservation, but we also knew you had like so many other skills in your wheelhouse. So we had put this little earmark on, uh, on you in our list that we wanted to have you back, especially for food preservation. So here we are. I'm really excited for this conversation. Wonderful. I'm excited to talk about it too. Uh, dehydration is, is something that I love to do. And so, yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. Fabulous. So let's just kick it off. We'll just dive right in. Um, in the grand scheme of the food that you put up and preserve, like what percentage roughly would you say is dehydrated versus the other methods? I'd say maybe a third. I probably equally spread it out. I maybe do a third dehydrated, uh, a third canned, and then a third frozen. And it varies depending on the year. Like last year, it was very different because of the shortage of canning lids. <laughs> and this year's likely going to be the same. So my goal this year is to do way more dehydrating just for that reason. I want to kind of save my canning lids. And um, that's a good way to do it is through dehydration. Definitely. So, you know, I've explained in the um, intro here that I 
I've done, I've, I mean, I've had a dehydrator for a long time. I got my first one at a garage sale years ago and then I've upgraded and I'll do dried tomatoes or I'll do jerky on occasion, but I haven't been very adventurous at all or really explored anything beyond just like the basic basics, maybe banana chips. I can do that, but you know, like anything mm-hmm. different. So what are the foods that you and your family really depend on or that you, um, put up consistently year after year with your dehydrator with the dehydrator. Okay. So when I think about dehydrating, I want to think about convenience. You know, when I want any kind of food preservation that I do, I want to do it in the most convenient way for my family. So when I think about what I want to dehydrate, I'm going to think about how I'm going to use it. And so most of the dehydrated foods I'm using, like vegetables, for example, I'm dehydrating them to use in things like soups, because that's a really convenient way to to use those foods. So I dehydrate a lot of single vegetables in that way to kind of use in soups and stews throughout the year. And then we do a lot of fruits for snacking, um, trail mixes, things like that. We, as you mentioned, you know, there's jerky. We don't do a whole lot of jerky, but but sometimes that, um, obviously herbs are a great thing to dehydrate. And then beyond that, there are some kind of, um, some other foods that are convenient. Sometimes, you know, even mashed potatoes can be dehydrated for a quick meal later on. All you have to do is rehydrate them and they're kind of done. So that's something you can do, um, different kinds of soup mixes. That's, that's a lot of what we do, um, dehydration wise. Okay. Um, I, I hear what you're saying about the convenience aspect for yeah. sure. So if you're going to be using dehydrated foods, you're not necessarily going to be rehydrating them on their own. Is that what I'm hearing? Or you're going to be like rehydrating in a soup or a, another dish of sorts? For example, um, green beans take a really long time to be rehydrated. Um, they sometimes have to soak even overnight to be usable as like a side dish with a meal. And, you know, same with freezing. Sometimes it isn't the most convenient because after you thaw them and they still have to be cooked. Whereas canning is something where you can just dump it out and use it right away. (laughs) So when I think about what vegetables I'm going to choose to dehydrate, I'm going to think about what's the easiest way to use them after um, I open the jar. And so using them in soups and stews, they're going to naturally rehydrate through that process. And so those, those are the vegetables that I typically choose to, to dehydrate are the ones that I'm going to use in soups and stews. And I have some favorites that I really like to, to use that way. Um, okay. I don't know if you want me to kind of go into yeah, that. I'd love, to hear, I'd love to hear the specifics of which ones that you, you like. For okay. that kind of stuff. Well, one of my favorite ones is okra. Um, we love to grow okra here and I feel like okra preserved in any other way. Rehydrated, the texture holds up wonderfully. So we do a lot of dehydrated okra. We do a lot of dehydrated greens. Those are great to just add to soups and sauces or even smoothies um, throughout the, the winter. Um, things like carrots dehydrate really well. Um, trying to think tomatoes are wonderful. Uh, zucchini, we do a lot of dehydrating. I'm trying to think of what uh, corn can be dehydrated really easily. So those are probably the top foods that we would use. And once again, a lot of those things like the corn, um, the carrots, the uh, okra, they'll just be dumped into a a winter soup and that's how we'll use them later on. Okay. I like that. And that's really not something I've done um, a whole lot of is just putting it into the soups. Can you Mm -hmm. speak to the mashed potato idea? Cause that one, I'm really interested by that. How do you, you just make regular mashed potatoes like butter and cream and then dehydrate those? 
Well, um, most foods that would be high in a fat or oil aren't going to dehydrate or store really well. So if you're going to make something like a mashed potato, it's best to just boil the potatoes. And then have you, I don't know if you've ever made fruit leather, but it's kind of the similar idea where you're going to just mash it down into a pulp, spread it on your dehydrator trays with something like a parchment paper or a mat underneath it and dehydrate it like that. And then it'll just make like a sheet (laughs) of mashed potato that then you could break up into almost like a powder or whatever to store and then scoop it out and reconstitute it. And then you can add your fats after you reconstitute it. It's the, it's the same idea as, um, you know, like dried potatoes that you would get in a store that are shelf stable. Okay. How is yeah. the flavor and texture comparison? Cause I like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm from Idaho. I'm a little bit of a potato. Snob. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I know at a restaurant, I'm like, don't serve me those, uh, fake. So yeah. Potatoes. Like how do the homemade ones compare taste and texture wise to those? Well, I mean, nothing's as good as fresh homemade mashed potatoes. I'm not going to lie. And, um, you know, it's the same as eating any kind of raw vegetable is generally tastier than preserved (laughs) in any way, but it's not bad. I mean, I don't mind them. And I feel like with enough, uh, with enough fat added to them, they taste really good, but it's, it's a great way. yeah. Yeah. It's a great way to preserve them without having to use up freezer space or, or, um, you know, or to have to can them. Like I said, if lids are short or whatever yeah. this year, it's a, it's a great way to use up the potatoes. You just add enough butter and everything's edible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't have butter well, here, but we do, do butter bacon I grease agree. a lot. Okay. Bacon right. grease. That's a close <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's still, that's yeah. Still oh right. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, bacon, add bacon to anything and we're good. Yep. Yep. That's good. You know, sometimes my husband will do cleanses and he is, he'll go dairy free for a while. And I have struggled with the potatoes. I know I, I've added like um, olive oil to mashed potatoes and it hasn't been great. Mm-hmm. I've tried all kinds of things, but I didn't try, think of bacon grease. So I will add that next time. I need yeah. a dairy-free mashed potato. Yeah. Yeah. It works great. What about the soup mixes that you mentioned? Yeah. So um, you could potentially, instead of storing those items separately, just make a little blend together and um, mix it up. And then that would be ready, you know, pre-measured out your, your different mixtures of the various vegetables. And then you can just with something like carrots that would take a really long time to rehydrate um, because what's going to happen is your greens are going to turn to mush (laughs) in the soup whereas the carrots might still be a little crunchy so stick to making soup blends of items that are all going to take similar times to rehydrate so like with your carrots you could mix some um, some okra or some corn or some green beans or something like that. And all of that will have the same kind of texture after it rehydrates in the soup. Okay. And you cut out for a minute on my end. Um, did you, I don't know if you already addressed this. So sorry if this is redundant. You, so you'll do your vegetables and then will you add like the broth later? You won't like try to dehydrate. Can you dehydrate broth in a dehydrator? Cause I know you could freeze dry um, broth. Yeah. I don't, I don't believe, I mean, I've never t- tried it. I don't know how that would work. So I like it probably wouldn't work. I don't think that that would work. But maybe definitely. Yeah. 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 I just so, play around. Yeah. There's a couple of ways to do. Yeah. Um, can you hear me? I can't. Sorry. We're, I know we're okay. cutting out and there's some weird <laughs> connections. So for the, for those of you listening, if we're, if there's a lag there, our apologies, it's rural internet, but go ahead. <laughs> no, there's a couple ways that you can do it. When you go to rehydrate the foods, you could rehydrate the vegetables separately and maybe just rehydrate them directly into broth so that they would pull that broth flavor into them. 
um, and then that would save you on the broth you have to put in your soup. But to make it much more convenient, you would just throw those vegetables directly into the hot pot of soup as you're as you're making it, mm. um, because foods rehydrate much more quickly if you have it in boiling or hot water versus you know room temperature water. So that's what makes it so convenient is that you can just get your broth heated up and add you know your onions and your garlic or whatever you're adding to the soup, and then throw your uh, vegetables in and they will rehydrate while everything else is cooking. It's really, uh, really convenient. Yeah. I love that. What are your thoughts on nutrient loss during dehydration? Do you have, have you done any, I'm, I'm sure you have research yeah. looking into that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, every, um, preservation method has its pros and cons when it comes to nutrient loss. Um, the but you can do things to prevent the loss of some of those nutrients. Like just like with freezing, you're going to want to blanch your vegetables before you dehydrate them. And that will help retain a lot of the nutrients, stop enzyme action, um, with your fruits, you know, doing some kind of vitamin C treatment prior to, um, some people use ascorbic acid or they'll dip the fruit in lemon juice or fruit juice or something that's high in vitamin C, and that will help prevent some of the nutrient loss. But, um, once it's dehydrated and shelf stable, it doesn't lose nutrients like, like it happens through freezing, um, you know, at the longer food sits in a freezer, the less, um, the nutrients are available, I guess. <laughs> so dehydration is definitely better on that part. Um, so yeah, just doing a few of the, the preventative measures will help and, and that's what you need to do. Would you, um, with pretty much all the vegetables, would you across the board, do you blanch or just certain ones? I find that with dehydrating, blanching is better with most vegetables. The, the ones that I wouldn't would be like greens, things that are kind of thinner, um, that won't hold up to the blanching process as well, but pretty much across the board there, the texture is better on the foods when you rehydrate them. If they're blanched first, the, the first time I ever dehydrated green beans, I didn't blanch them. And everybody had told me how wonderful these dehydrated green beans were. And so I just dehydrated them and then I rehydrated them and they tasted awful. They were like, rubber and just, um, just awful. And then someone was like, well, did you blanch them? And I hadn't even thought to really do that. And so now across the board, I blanch everything and I turn out with much better results. So I highly recommend it. I, so here's, here's why I asked some of these questions. I am a lazy food prepper as far as like when it comes to canning, <laughs> like if there's a, a, a recipe that requires me to, uh, do a lot of tedious food prep, I get, uh, grouchy about it. So like, do you peel, like, I know sometimes recipes will say to peel all the tomatoes before you can, which I never do. Um, mm -hmm. do you like peel the tomatoes before you dehydrate, which I rarely do. Do you do a lot of like the peeling and stuff, or do you find that the peels kind of just are negligible once you dry them? Yeah. I, I'm just like you, like I need to get food in jars or on dehydrator trays, like as fast as possible. So yeah. I, I definitely, um, avoid peeling whenever I can. And, you know, with, canning, a lot of times you're asked to remove the peels simply because the peel is where a lot of the bacteria might end up on the fruit or the vegetable. And mm -hmm. so with the canning process, that really makes sense. You don't want that to end up in the jar, but you don't really have that concern when you're dehydrating the food. So 
um, yeah, I, I rarely remove the, the peels and I don't really find it to be, um, because you also, when you're dehydrating things, you're slicing it so thinly to, to get it on the dehydrator tray to, you know, dry out that you don't have this really big, thick chunk of peel on the edge that you have to worry about. Like you do you know, with a, with a large, um, apple slice or a pear slice or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. That's, and that's good to know because I just am the worst. I know sometimes I'll see recipes that are just so tedious and they're calling for roasting this and peeling this. I'm just like, nope, not doing it. I don't <laughs> yeah. care if it tastes good, not doing it. <laughs> I completely understand. Yeah, we we try to leave them on as, as much as we can to save time. For sure. So what are some of the different ways that someone could dehydrate? I mean, obviously a dehydrating machine, if you don't have a machine and someone's listening, what are their options? Okay. Well, you know, to dehydrate, basically all you need is warmth and you need dry air. So there are a lot of different ways you can do that. Um, the easiest would be just using the air outside. And, you know, historically that's how our, our ancestors sort of did it. And so I know a lot of people who will use just like uh, an empty window screen that they're not using and lay the food out and stick it up high somewhere, um, in a really dry room and it will, and it will dry out over time. Uh, they even make solar dehydrators. If you live off grid or you have, you know, you can't run an, an electric dehydrator for whatever reason, there are solar options out there. They're a little more expensive. There are some uh, do-it-yourself kind of tutorials to make one, but that's an option. Um, you can always use your oven as well. And, you know, a lot of people have good results with that if you have, um, you know, an oven in your house to use. I have a friend, um, her name's Kristen. And she lives off grid. Um, she's Maple or Hidden Creek Maple Farm. Um, you can find her on Instagram. But she lives off grid and can't run a dehydrator. She uses her car even to dehydrate foods. It's it's oh. pretty amazing. So she can lay things on like cookie sheets and stick them under car seats, and it gets warm enough in there to dry things out for her. So there are a lot of options. But obviously, an electric um, dehydrator is going to give you a more consistent result because you are there's a fan in the back that is giving you good airflow. And there, you know, the heat is regulated. Whereas if you're using the air or a solar dehydrator, you can't really regulate that as easily. Um, but yeah, there are lots of options. So if you did just use your oven, I mean, I think my oven goes down maybe to 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Is that mm. low enough or would someone need to be kind of looking at what, how low their oven goes? What's the target there if you're using a non-dehydrator? Right. Yeah. I mean, every food dehydrates at different, um, temperatures and you can pick up any dehydrator guide and it will kind of give you that idea. But, you know, a lot of them for like your really delicate herbs, you only want it to be maybe hundred, 105 degrees. And so your oven might be, it's going to kind of fry those to a crisp and not be ideal. Um, but some people, if you stick a thermometer in your oven and turn on that oven light and kind of see what temperature it gets at on its own, you might be able to achieve something for like an herb just that way. Uh, but yeah, I mean, even fruits and vegetables, you're not wanting it really above 125 or 135. So um, yeah, you just kind of have to play around with your specific oven and see how you could achieve those results um, using like an external thermometer, like you stick it in there and, and see what temperature yeah. you get. That's a good, a good idea to just try the oven light for those lower temps. Like I'll do that sometimes with rising bread or mm -hmm. um, used to do it for making yogurt. I actually use my dehydrator to make yogurt now, mm -hmm. with, yes. which is cool. But yeah, that's a good idea. So I hadn't thought of that. This episode is brought to you by Redmond's Real Salt, the number one salt I use in all of my homestead cooking, canning, and fermentation. 
I've learned over the years that not all salt is created equal, and having the good stuff really does make a difference in your culinary adventures, especially when it comes to canning or fermentation. If you use the general run-of-the-mill grocery store salt with its iodine and its sugars and its additives, it can cause your canned or fermented foods to have off flavors, textures, and colorations. So it really does make a difference to get the good stuff. Redmond's is the only salt mine in the good old US of A, and I love that they use sustainable practices in their mining, and it contains 60 plus trace minerals that not only make it good for you, but it actually tastes better too. Since I can't mine salt here on our homestead, obviously, I like to buy salt in bulk because that saves me some cash and it never goes bad. I actually bought a 25 pound bag of Redmond salt last summer and I'm still using it. I just keep it in a bucket down in my basement pantry and it's still going strong. Right now, Redmond's is offering 15% off your entire order just for my podcast listeners. Head on over to theprairiehomestead.com slash salt and use the code homestead to snag your discount. Now, back to our episode. What model of dehydrator do you have? Or do you have a favorite, I guess? Well, I have an Excalibur and I, I really like it. Um, you know, speaking of expensive, I've, I found it um, on a cyber Monday deal one time for like half price. So if you look out there, you can sometimes get great deals. So I was really happy when I, when I found that, but it's great. It works wonderfully. And, um, I believe I'm trying to think of how many trays mine has maybe eight trays or 10. Okay. Um, but my one, um, regret, if I went back to, to buy another one, I would get one with stainless steel trays. That's a really nice feature. I just feel like they'd be easier to clean and, you know, just maybe be a little healthier to have the stainless steel when you're heating things up versus other options. But, but yeah, other, overall the Excalibur does a great job and, and I've been using it now for five or six years and great consistent results. Do you have any thoughts for if someone's going out to shop? Cause I know there's quite a range. I mean, I, the one I found, I think was like a harvest something. Mm-hmm. It was the round one. I got it in garage sale for a couple bucks a long time ago. And I used that for a number of years before I did upgrade to an Excalibur. Um, beyond the stainless steel trays, which I totally agree with, by the way, um, do you have any other thoughts that someone should keep in mind when they're going to go shopping for a dehydrator if they're ready to make that investment? I mean, just consider size for your family. Obviously, it's going to be much more energy efficient um, to run more at once versus just filling a couple trays at a time. So, um, you know, if you have a, a large family, I would definitely recommend going larger. But if, you know, if you're only going to be dehydrating small amounts at a time, you don't need all that extra space. And so using, you know, something smaller. And before we had an, the Excalibur, I just had went to a kitchen store and got a really um, inexpensive Nesco dehydrator that had like three trays, I think. And I used that for eight years before it died and it did a wonderful job also. So you don't need something big and fancy, um, in order to have great results. It just, you know, the, the size wise, we really did need to upgrade eventually. So it just depends sure. on what your family needs. Yeah, I would say definitely if you have, unless it's just like you and a spouse or whatever, the, the bigger, it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Even though we only have three kids, I just know with a quantity of food that we'll bring in sometimes. I We have the full-size Excalibur and I'm still wishing for more trays on occasion. <laughs> yeah. And because one of the big benefits of dehydrating is the fact that it's so cost-effective compared to other preservation methods. You know, you think of a cost to run a freezer 
um, and the cost you have in each canning jar with lids and, you know, all of that, that dehydration is just a really cheap uh, method. And it's even cheaper, the more you can, you know, dry at once that just brings the, the price of that down. So yeah, just in the long run, it's going to pay off. Think about how much you invest in a, in a freezer to freeze food year after year, paying a little money for a really nice dehydrator in the long run, is going to just save you a lot more money than, than having to buy a freezer down the road or, or a bunch of canning lids. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think that's a smart way to look at it is yeah. um, what you'd be spending in, in energy, et cetera. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I know when I first started dehydrating that I really struggled or I second guessed myself on knowing when food would, was done. And I would uh, several times pulled stuff off. Now I, now I know it was prematurely and it was a little too wet, or I was always worried about it getting too dry. Like, can you over dry foods or kind of what's your, um, game plan for knowing when stuff is done? I, I'm sure it depends on the food itself, but just yeah. overall. Yeah. I mean, there are so many factors. That's why every, every dehydrator guide you have, um, might give you different directions on times because, you know, the humidity in the air that way is going to have to be factored in. Um, the, the thickness that you sliced, you know, that will affect how long it takes to dry the food. So, um, I would just say that it, you kind of get a feel for it. The more you do it, you just, um, with vegetables, you want it to get to a point where the food will literally crack if you try to bend it. Um, fruits, you don't want it to get that dry fruits are going to get, stay a little more hydrated and you just want it to be bendy, but not sticky anymore. Um, and so a great way to test it is after you've dried it, if you feel like it's dry enough, you're going to want to put it in the jar and seal it up after it's completely cooled. Because remember that warm foods are still going to be giving off moisture. So let it completely dry and then stick it in the jar. And if you see any moisture beginning to form in the jar, then obviously you know that, um, that food isn't dry. So before you stick it in the back of the pantry and forget about it <laughs> for a while, keep it somewhere in sight and just check the jar for any signs of moisture. And that's actually something really important to remember with fruit, with fruit, there's a process you need to do called conditioning after you dry it. Uh, because fruit retains a little extra moisture. Once you put it in the jar, you don't just want to, um, seal it up and forget about it. It dries really unevenly. So some pieces are going to be drier than the others. So you put it in the jar and every day go by for a week and kind of shake it up a little bit and mix it around so that some of the pieces that are a little more wet that might be on the bottom kind of move to the top and vice versa. And the drier pieces will absorb some of the moisture from the wetter ones. And every you know day you shake it, that helps that along. And after a week, it should be good to go. But if, if you ever see any bits of moisture forming on the inside of the jar, obviously, you know, that means that you need to rehydrate the food or dehydrate it again. Dehydrate, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. Re, re dehydrate. Re, I know it's a lot, a lot of hydrating happening. There is. <laughs> um, okay. And I actually have never done the conditioning. I mean, I haven't yeah. done a ton of fruit, but that's, that's good to know. Cause I do know like with apples or whatever, there is more moisture for sure. It's more, more leathery versus definitely. Yeah. And you want it that way because no one, if, especially if you're using it for snacking, you don't want a bone dry, you know, apple chip. It's much nicer to have a little bit of, um, a little bit of moisture in there. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. And so once you, with your fruit, you've done your, your conditioning or maybe your vegetables don't need that. How do you store? I mean, you, you mentioned jar and pantry. Is that the extent, um, as far as keeping them for a longer period of time? 
Well, I remember in our last conversation, we talked about there's really two ways to look at at storage of food. You're either going to put something in your short-term workable food pantry, or you're going to stick it in your long-term food storage. So how you store your dehydrated food is obviously going to differ depending on on how quickly you plan to use it. Um, So same with other food storage um, methods, I guess you want to keep the dehydrated foods somewhere um, dry and cool, you know, optimally between 40 to 70 degrees would be ideal. And then somewhere dark is really important too, because if you're drying herbs or fruits and vegetables and they're sitting on a shelf where they're getting a lot of light in time, those foods will fade in color and they just look less appealing. So um, dark is really important there. Um, Something to also remember about when you're storing dehydrated foods is that every time you open the jar, you potentially let moisture in there. So it's, it's really best to store them in as small of a container as possible. So let's say um, we talked before about making or dehydrating vegetables for like soup mixes and things like that. I see a lot of people who will grab a a gallon sized glass jar and just start filling that up with dehydrated vegetables as the season goes on. But then every time you open that jar and grab a few scoops out, you're potentially putting moisture in there that will compromise the long-term storage of that food. So it's much better to put the vegetables in something like a pint size canning jar or a quart size canning jar so that when you go to make that food, you can just do a single serving, you know, open it up and dump it. That's really ideal for storage. So. Okay. That makes sense. Do you ever use um, oxygen absorbers or mylar bags for your dehydrated foods? Yeah. If you were looking at long-term food storage, that would be really important because um, yeah, I mean, you want to want to keep the oxygen out to prolong the life of it because dehydrated food can last for decades, even if it's stored properly. So if I were dehydrating something and it was something I wanted to keep for like um, six months or longer, and I would probably look into getting some Mylar bags, toss it in there, put an oxygen absorber in, and then I could put those in a five gallon bucket and put it in the long-term pantry. The oxygen absorbers are also important for pests. And I know we've touched on this before when we've talked, but with dehydrated foods, there's um, kind of even more of a concern with pests because um, especially if you're air drying foods, as the food sits there in the room, there is the opportunity for pests to come and lay eggs on it. It sounds so nasty, but it can happen. (laughs) And um, dehydrating, while it will kill any live bugs and larvae that are, are in your fruits and vegetables, it does not kill any of the eggs. And so if you have eggs on that food and then you stick it in um, your jars or a container or something and set it on the shelf, there's the potential to get an infestation. And so um, an oxygen absorber in your long-term food storage will help prevent that. If it's going in your short-term food storage, what you can do to prevent that is just stick that jar in the freezer for 48 hours and then nothing, you know, it, it would kill anything in there. So something to consider. And then always remember if you're doing like bulk dehydrating and anything you're bringing in, any of the fruits or vegetables are kind of buggy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it maybe not, might not be the best option to dehydrate that food just because of the potential for eggs to be, to be in it. Right. Cause they, cause they potentially could survive like your one one forty five or whatever. Yeah. Degrees, do they, some of them might just be okay and just 
be real resilient and go yeah. through that. <laughs> yep. And the, the eggs, especially it won't kill the eggs. So yeah, while you may sure. kill all the bugs, you know, they're just going to hatch a couple yeah. weeks later and then you're, <laughs> and that's you're dealing with them. Not yeah. great. <laughs> not great in a pantry because once, nope. once it starts, it's really hard to, uh, <laughs> to get rid of. Yeah. Bugs yeah. in a jar. So have you ever had, um, your dehydrated food go bad? Like maybe not bugs, but with just spoil or that's not really a concern. Um, well around here, we typically, <laughs> my kids eat a lot. So we use it all up, um, a lot. I, I mean, we've had mold issues before. And so, you know, we've had, had that issue where I thought something was, was safe and we stick it up on the jar and then I go to get it out a few months later and we realize that there, there was some molding. So there is that concern. Um, but in terms of, um, spoilage, once it's completely dry and on the shelf, I mean, it will, it will last months, the dehydrated food will. So, um, so yeah, as long it's just like with canning, as long as you follow all the instructions and the times properly and your jars are clean and you've, um, you know, done everything and stored it properly, it will, it will be fine. Okay. Um, just fun. What's your number one favorite dehydrated food? Wow. My number one dehydrated. Well, I mean, taste wise, I love fruit leather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's my favorite. Um, I really love to dehydrate tomatoes. I know that sounds weird, but we just slice the tomatoes and, um, dehydrate them on trays and they make a great, um, pizza topping in the winter because I feel like I love, I, I look forward to all summer fresh tomatoes and I love tomato slices on so many things. And then in the winter, that's what I'm really missing. So I just dehydrate the slices and then you can literally take like a wide mouth canning jar and just kind of pile them up in there and store them that way and rehydrate them. And they, they, it feels like a little taste of summer. So that's probably my favorite thing to do. And even if you get, if you get low on tomato paste or anything, you can also grind them up and then uh, reconstituted a little bit and you have uh, tomato paste for your pizza. So it's really versatile. I, I like that. Yeah. And we've done, I've done, I have done sliced tomatoes. My kids, I'll, I'll always say these are for me to use in like recipes as like kind of sun-dried. Um, right. Then they end up using, they eat them as snacks. They, they think yeah. they're <laughs> just regular old dried out from the jar. So yeah, it's not good though. And it takes definitely a lot less space than canning tomato sauce, you know? Oh yeah. So much room. It's always amazing how, you know, a bowl full of tomatoes in the canning jar versus dehydrated the the space difference there mm-hmm. impressive and, yeah yeah and I mean you could potentially dehydrate tomato sauce and I know a lot of people that do that and it takes Um, having shelf stable tomato sauce to just kind of dump out <laughs> and heat up mm-hmm. is much easier than having to, to rehydrate the, the sauce and wait for it to, to be ready. So, but it is an option dehydrating sure. the tomato sauce. Sure. Especially maybe if you're short on pantry space, which I get that question a lot. Do you get that question? Like, how do I build up a food supply? And I, I live in a tiny apartment or whatever. So I think that dehydrating is a great option for that. Uh, definitely. I mean, I think Last week, and you know, had I frozen them on kale, the, the square would taken up in my freezer versus fitting all of that into a tiny little jar on my shelf. It's yeah, it's much easier. Um, saves a lot of space and energy. Definitely, yeah. All right. So as we wrap up, is there anything I missed? Anything you you would like to share with someone looking at dehydrating, or maybe they've tried it and they're they're looking to add more of it into their life? Any 
last words of wisdom? Um, well, I'm trying to think. I'm looking at my notes here. I guess um, as I as I mentioned in the beginning, I think if you've been sitting on DeAndre for a couple years and you kind of haven't known how to use it, like this is the year to get it out and try it just because um, canning supplies are in, in such shortage. So get and try it. It's it's really easy to use, you know, it's much cheaper than the alternatives. It, it can preserve more nutrients and it just saves you um, some space in your freezer. So, so Jessica, <laughs> we wrap up with all this awesome dehydrating info today. Any last words of wisdom for someone who is ready to do more dehydrating this year and, and next year as into their homestead efforts? Yeah, I would just say, like I mentioned in the beginning, that if dehydrating is something that you've been kind of interested in, or maybe you have a dehydrator sitting in your kitchen and you just don't know how to use it, or you're kind of intimidated, this is the year to get it out and and learn how to use it. Because can supply and it's a cheaper way to preserve the food. It can preserve more nutrients. It's convenient. And just it's really pantry, and you have. Um, yeah, I just this is it. for me. This is my year for dehydrating. I'm definitely um, hydrated. Just awesome. Uh, I agree. This is the year since the since canning supplies like who would have thought are are tough to find maybe a little easier I think I've seen I saw jars the other day at a, at a feed store believe it or not locally but it still is tough I think in a lot of areas of the country to find all the jars and lids so yeah look at dehydrating anywhere here <laughs> yes yes um so in case people aren't following you from I'm sure a lot of them are already from our previous episode together where can they find you on the internet if they want to keep up with your homestead adventures on Instagram at Three Rivers Homestead. And I'm also on YouTube, um, the same, Three Rivers Homestead. And we have a really fun food preservation challenge here in the month of August. It's called the Every Bit Counts Challenge. And we started it last year. Something from the garden to their pantry, whether through dehydrating or canning or freezing. Um, and it's amazing how one little task every day it will add up through the course of the month with this this huge chunk of fellow homesteaders join in and share on the hashtag every bit counts challenge and you get tons of ideas for how to um, maybe dehydrate some foods maybe you get some ideas there so join us it's a lot of fun I like it. Every bit counts. That's so true. So good. So everybody go check out the challenge and check out Jessica's Instagram and all the stuff she has to offer. Um, thanks again, my friend. I really appreciate your time and all of your knowledge that you so freely share with us. It's awesome. Thanks, Jill. It was wonderful to talk. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening along, my friend. I hope you enjoyed that episode and got as much out of it as I did. And hey, if you're feeling inspired to start preserving more food after listening to all these amazing interviews on the podcast this season. My Canning Made Easy program is one of the very best places to start. I created this course several years ago when I realized that a ton of people were getting stuck 
with canning processes and canning safety methods because there's just so much information online and it can feel super overwhelming. And I wanted to just make this process simple because canning does not have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be scary or uncertain. It can be something you do just while you're in the kitchen working on other things sometimes. It doesn't have to be an ordeal. And so I created this program of videos, ebooks, and charts that has since allowed thousands of you to learn how to can without the stress. And this year, I'm actually adding something extra special to the program. I'm gonna be sending anyone who joins the program a box, an actual physical box from my homestead to yours of some of my favorite canning accessories. I'm gonna be throwing in a couple of my favorite reusable canning lids, you know, so the canning lid shortage just doesn't have to be a concern. I'll send you a sample of my favorite sea salt that I use for all of my preserving, a flip top to convert your mason jar into all sorts of handy pantry storage, and probably my favorite part of all is my very much requested old-fashioned on-purpose kitchen towel. You may have seen it hanging in my kitchen in some videos or photos. It has the old-fashioned on-purpose manifesto on it. A ton of people have messaged me after seeing photos and said, Jill, where do I get the towel? And we finally got a batch of them printed up and we'll be tucking that into your little goodie box whenever you join the course. So to check out the course, all that's offered and to see what's in my little box that I'll be sending you, just head on over to learnhowtocan.com to have a look.